So we have posted this to the city manager's Facebook page if you would like to share that on your own respective Facebook pages. So as where, well. did, where does the clog usually happen that they have to go in and put man hours into digging it out? So we uh, mainly at pump stations, so like for example, pump station six is owned by Classic Care, Senior Living. Um, we had actually put a screen on that, so now the screens will plug. So that's trying to keep the, the pump fouling, but our visits out to clear that screen are, are getting you know, closer and closer in between and just taking more staff time. Yeah. So if it keeps up, it's just going to consume more time, so we're trying to avoid it. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure. Yeah, and also uh, our, our slow sewers, which are sewers that are relatively flat that tend to plug up, we have to keep those flush. It's still has issues with those too. I'm assuming that press release is on the webpage. I didn't see it, it didn't come through for me now, so I just want to be able to make sure. Okay, thank you. So uh, the first item on the agenda is discussion of system development charges. All right. <clears throat> um, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, my name is Nathan Crater, I'm an Astoria City Engineer. I'm going to be talking about system development charges. I'd like to start off by um, thanking um, uh, the mayor and city council for taking the time to uh, discuss this with uh, city staff. I understand that this is certainly not probably on the forefront of your thoughts at the moment, given the situation going on with COVID-19. Um, we think this is an important uh, topic to discuss, and so you know, uh, we'll try to keep this brief and to the point and not waste any more of your time than we need to. So with that, let's get started. <clears throat> so the purpose of this uh, discussion uh, is to give you some basic uh, uh, information on uh, system development charges or STCs. I think the Public Works Director, Jeff Harrington, may have shared some information uh, at a, uh, a goal-setting session uh, several years ago. So some of this may be a repeat uh, for some of you. Um, it may also be, be new information. Uh, because this is a uh, a little bit less formal format than a city council meeting or work session. I encourage you to interrupt me at any point with questions. You certainly don't have to wait till the end. So we'll be going over a definition of an SDC, uh, different types of SDCs that can be assessed uh, and implemented, benefits of SDCs, um, and specific uh, to some asteroid projects that could benefit from them. We'll be looking at an SDC comparison by agency to give you kind of an idea of what type of funding uh, do other cities get from SDCs. Uh, talk about next steps, and then certainly at the end, follow up with uh, questions or discussion. All right. <clears throat> we'll hop right into it here. So what are system development charges? A system development charge, or SDC, is a one-time fee imposed on new or some types of redevelopment at the time of development. The fee is intended to recover a fair share of the cost of existing and planned facilities and provide capacity to serve new growth. So, the use of SDCs uh, are established uh, in Oregon Vice Statute, uh, ORS 223. And these define SDCs, they specify how they can be calculated, applied, and accounted for by local governments. Uh, by statute, an SDC is a sum of uh, two components. The first is a reimbursement fee. Uh, these are designed to recover costs associated with capital improvement projects uh, already constructed or under construction. And the second part is an improvement fee. This would be for future projects. They're designed to recover costs associated with capital improve, uh, improvement projects in the future. 
So the reimbursement fee given, um, it, it says already constructed. Correct. In a, within a time frame? So um, the, I don't have the, the exact answer to that question, but typically SDCs need to go towards projects um, that have added capacity to a system. For example, if we have a sewer line that is currently operating at a 50% capacity um, that was put in 10 years ago, say we still have debt service on it, um, that could be an instance where an SDC could be applied to that in a reimbursement uh, So far, it's infrastructure, constructed, previously constructed infrastructure. Infrastructure. Somebody's new project that they've finished and now that we're going to retroactively go after SDCs. No, yeah, yeah. So this is, yeah, this is for a previously constructed infrastructure or something right. that's currently under construction. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> Good question. So what types of SDCs are there? Well, we've got the four uh, primary areas of infrastructure, the water, sanitary, sewer, storm drainage, and transportation. Uh, and then we have parks because oftentimes, you know, development, say a subdivision that's adding units uh, would also increase demand on, on a park. And so an SDC could uh, go to adding capacity improvements in existing um, facilities like on a multi-use trail, like the river trail, or add additional equipment to parks or develop parks potentially, so. Oh, I would note that one thing, is it wouldn't affect the city of Astoria or anywhere in Oregon, but in Washington State, they have school system development charges, uh, but school system development charges are not legal in the state of Oregon. Yeah, we, we have a school excise tax on, right. on a building permit, which may function in a similar, similar manner. Right. Yeah, um, thank you, Brett. Uh, it's important to note that some jurisdictions will have all five of these SDCs. Um, there's other jurisdictions uh, that might just have one or several of them, um, or some uh, like Astoria, which are increasingly in the minority that might not have any system development charges. Uh, so it's, a, it's basically, you know, come, when an SDC study is done, they'll look at, you know, where, where these um, uh, charges would be applied, where they'll be applicable, um, things of that nature to kind of assess which, which areas um, to develop. All right, so what are some benefits of SDCs? Well, SDCs help ensure that adequate public facilities are available to serve new development. Um, they're also a way for new development to contribute to the costs of facilities needed to serve new development without imposing a burden on existing development or utility rate payers. That, that piece is, is very important because um, basically what, you know, what happens is that the cost of capacity improvements happens uh, in some manner. And so um, SDCs are a way, uh, maybe uh, considered a more equitable way to, to um, uh, get funding for those types of improvements. Uh, if, if they're not in place, then cities have to get creative about how they uh, improve systems, um, especially like uh, at the point to end of the system, like at a water treatment plant or a wastewater treatment plant. SDCs are assessed on properties which are, are, excuse me, SDCs are not assessed on properties which are already developed unless they change use uh, or increase in size and demand. And SDCs pay for capital improvement projects. We'll talk about that a little bit more here. Um, however, they are not intended for operations and maintenance. So change use, um, would that be, be a specific type of change use, one that would demand more service? 
that it's, it's some sort of matrix. I mean, I yeah, I get an example would be um, an example could be um, redevelopment of a, uh, a warehouse. warehouse building to be a reduction, be a reduction. Be a brewery or something. Yeah. And my question as well. Yeah. So. Okay. Any, so would it be any time there's a change of use permit that's applied for, or? They, they wouldn't necessarily be um, assessed any time there's a change in use. I think you, you, you'd look at kind of the impacts to the system. So, uh, in, in what, you know, is that gonna be more water demand, more transportation? I think there's some flexibility on that as you develop and implement SDCs. Certainly, if you have, if you have a low use, like you've got, um, probably an, an oddball example would be, you know, like a duplex, duplex on a large commercial lot, you know, that was serving just um, a couple people, and then now it gets developed as some, something commercial that has a much higher use. Certainly, you know, that that would be a situation where, um, you know, they would be assessed for that for that new use. You can also expansion. You could have a hotel that might doubles in size. Um, they may need to upgrade their water meter size, and that would be the time where you capture that um, system to pay the charge for that expansion. Appreciate the good questions. So. Um, here's some examples of city bath story projects that could benefit from SDC. So kind of just compiled a quick list here of uh, projects that are in the preliminary uh, design stage, um, planning stage, conceptual design, or maybe considered near term. And I'll just run down the list and kind of give you an idea of uh, what type of SDC might apply to that if one were in place. Um, we'll start off with future CSO related projects. So as you know, uh, CSO related projects uh, Combined sewer, sewer overflow related projects are intended to uh, minimize uh, sewage overflows to the river. And the primary way we do this is we install storm drainage infrastructure, so we add capacity where there wasn't any. Um, and by doing so, we remove flow from the sewer. So in this particular case, uh, SDCs could potentially be applied for both the sanitary sewer and the storm drainage SDC. Or funding from those uh, could be. Uh, Applied to help assist with some of these projects and reduce the burden um, on, on the ratepayers um, and other funding sources. The wastewater treatment plant headworks project, I think we've maybe discussed this um, at a few points. Uh, we had a conceptual design done. Um, this would add root removal screening um, and some uh, influence uh, flow controls out at our treatment plant. This would be a great candidate for a sanitary sewer um, or funding from a sanitary sewer SDC. Um, and keep in mind, uh, the system development charges wouldn't be funding these projects in their entirety. It would just be one mechanism to maybe reduce the amount of debt service when the project was done or to minimize the burden on another funding source that we have. Um, water treatment plant clearwell project. This may have been brought up briefly when we were uh, discussing um, uh, water rates for outlying water districts. This is another project that, that would add capacity at our water treatment plant. Um, operational capacity, resiliency, and something that would be a, a good example of how funding from a water SDC could be applied. And trans tra transportation system plan project. So I didn't list anything specifically here. I can uh, provide a few examples, but our TSP gives a whole host of near-term projects uh, that are related to traffic mobility improvements, pedestrian safety improvements, um, and a uh, Funding from a transportation SDC could definitely help with a few of those projects. Um, an example might be the coordination of the signalized intersections at 30 and 30, 30th and 33rd um, to help the queuing move through there more smoothly. 
And then finally, uh, additional river lock lighting. So um, I understand this has been a topic of recent conversation with uh, a grant that, that um, the Parks Department is pursuing. A uh, Parks, Parks SDC could certainly uh, be leveraged um, as maybe funding for the match on a grant that we've got for a project like this. Uh, things like additional Portland loos or restrooms in strategic locations are all examples of capacity increases that could qualify uh, for funding from uh, SDC's collected. So it um, could be a good opportunity. The wayfinding might be another example of that. Were there any uh, questions on some of those? Maybe to make sure I understand understanding about what you're saying. Yeah. I'm going to build an apartment building. So I'm going to have, have to pay a system building charge. Mm -hmm. How is the, the amount of that charge arrived at? Is it tie into the impacts that I'm going to have, particularly on infrastructure, or is there some broader? Context. Yeah, so the, and, and I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in this, so I'll do my best because since we don't have them, I'm, I'm a lot of my information comes from research or talking with my colleagues. But typically, how that works is that um, when an SDC study is done, uh, one of the things that is looked at um, by uh, staff and a consultant are uh, what are the capital improvement projects that are needed in the near term or long term to add capacity to our system. They use kind of the they use the, the cost the estimated cost of those projects um, uh, get a total uh, based on that um, or similar projects and uh, they look at how to divide that up amongst certain types of uses whether that's a single family development a commercial development industrial uh, and so uh, on an apartment complex um, an example would an example of how those might be assessed be helpful so. Um, Say you've got a, and we actually do have an example, I have an example of that coming up, but um, the uh, impact to the water system might be based on the water meter size, because that's kind of a direct correlation. You know? So they would be charged um, a fee based on that water meter size, because that would uh, have been calculated in a study as kind of their fair contribution to the system based on their anticipated use. A lot of times the sewer charge, again, is based on the water meter charge, because the water you're using is going to come out the other end. And storm drainage, again, that's something that a lot of times would be calculated on like an impervious area of a, of a um, complex. So it, it is, it's intended to um, be a fair representation of that particular development's impact on the system. So no, no two developments are going to have the exact same charge. Um, with the exception of the single family dwellings, a lot of times they're, they're pretty close. That gets, um, because a lot of times they're very similar in footprint, uh, 50 by 100 lot or, or what have you. But, um, most everything is assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. Is that? That helps a lot. Nathan, Nathan, if I can also chime in. If this is something that the council ultimately wanted to be able to move forward with, there is a quite a bit of background work, as Nathan was saying, that would have to be done to really develop what are those plant, those projects that are needed for capacity. There's a whole fiscal analysis that would need to be done. Uh, and so it is, it is, it is something that is, um, there is a process, there is a procedure, there are statutes which apply, but it's not something that you just automatically turn on. It's, there would be quite a bit of analysis uh, to be able to, to be done to even bring something forward to the city council to, us, to vote on. And is that formula that you yeah. always, oh, sorry, Joe. Go ahead, Joe. No, that's all right. I was just going to ask, uh, in light of what you just said, Brad, 
do we have any idea what this might generate to the city? I'm just wondering um, if it makes sense to do this at this time. I mean, we do have at least one, possibly two large hotels that are going to be constructed. Is it not just a future which could potentially help? And again, I'm just wondering if you have any idea what type of money we're talking about. Um, I don't. I don't have an answer for that. That that, that is a fantastic question, Councillor Herman. I had. Um, Originally, when I planned this presentation, I was going to give them a run at maybe looking at some of our past building permit applications uh, and then tying an approximate uh, system development charge to that. Um, I didn't feel comfortable presenting that today uh, because um, they vary so wildly between jurisdictions. Um, and then, each, like I said, each project is unique. Um, so I, I don't really feel comfortable uh, tossing out a number just because you could have it could be very wildly from year to year just based on permit applications but but you yeah. are correct the the larger commercial developments your hotels things like that have the potential of um, uh, being assessed higher fees and so um, that, that that's a that is a generally a true statement um, as we'll, we'll see here in a few um, slides I was wondering if the, so we were talking about an example, potential example with Roger with the apartment complex. Are those, did you say that those formulas for how we arrive to certain amounts are um, something that the state produces or, or that? Yeah, so that, that Oregon Revised Statutes has very specific guidelines on how you establish SDCs. Um, and, and how you assess them. And uh, and, yeah, and there's an accounting up component to it as well. Okay. So every year, um, I believe, and again, I haven't been involved with the city that's had them before, but from what I understand, every year there's uh, basically an audit process or an accounting process where you have to show how they were collected, make sure they're going into the right pot because you know, using like a water SDC to um, do a pedestrian safety project is, 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 not, is not allowed. They have to stay, you know, they have to be used for what they're intended for. And so there is definitely um, an accounting process that makes sure that they are being used appropriately and fairly. That was exactly my question. Right, so a lot of variabilities here. So if we, had, if we, covered, if we had all five in place, it would just depend on each particular one might have a different formula based on its particular type of need. So each, and then each development, it may apply to one, two, or three, or four of these SDCs, um, depending on the situation. So again, it's, it's not, does that sound right that it, yes. you're just gonna have this matrix of? And the council ultimately would have to make, a, I mean, if they're looking at doing this, make a determination of, do you want to go after each one of those? those these are the available, scenarios that you could address. You don't have to do them all. Right, I, I saw we didn't have, we right. may have just say two or three or four of them, or just one, right. depending on what we see our potential yeah. needs and, and impact. So, uh, yep. development in Astoria. Okay, do you have anything else to add, Jeff? All right, I'm gonna, uh, yes, and thank you for all the very good questions. <laughs> That's very helpful. Um, so, uh, to be honest, I really just wanted to get a picture of this presentation because of how dry the material is. <laughs> so, but this is relevant. So here's a picture of the uh, CSO project that was occurring on 8th Street. 
the city is still uh, currently paying debt service on this combined sewer overflow project. This is an example of an area that may qualify for that reimbursement SDC. Um, so that could help pay down that debt service um, and, and potentially have a, a positive impact on um, a CSO surcharge or allow funding to be leveraged in other ways. So here's another example of a wastewater treatment plant effluent uh, uh, upgrade that recently happened, I think about was it six years ago, Cindy? About that. Six or seven years. Six or seven years ago. Um, we're also paying debt service on this particular project. And again, this is an example of where a sanitary sewer, funding from a sanitary sewer SDC could assist with some debt service potential. Um, and uh, a lot of these loans, including this one, I believe were set up so there is no early penalty early payoff penalty. Um, so that could be a, a great opportunity there. All right, so here is a uh, SDC comparison chart. Um, tried to show a few local agencies. We also have uh, a few larger agencies from the Levitt Valley shown on here. So as we've kind of um, discussed previously, uh, assessment of SDCs is uh, pretty challenging because each agency does it uh, a little differently, and so it's hard to compare apples to apples. So this is just a real rough comparison, uh, but I'll, I'll run through kind of what we're looking at here. So um, for the new single family, that would be the development of a new single family home, about 2,000 square feet with a 500 square foot garage, and, and the valuation on that was um, 250 um, with standard services or five-eighths by three-quarter meter, uh, four-inch sanitary sewer service. A lot of this information came from a 2018 building codes um, study, our state building code study that was done, uh, supplemented with some information from our, our local agencies that we um, plugged in there. The second column there is a new multifamily. Uh, I assume this is a, a right around a 10 unit apartment complex. Uh, the valuation on that was about $870,000 at an inch and a half water meter. Uh, you can see that those range from you know, some of the mid 50s up to thousand or so for some of the bigger jurisdictions and then on the far right a new commercial office um, <clears throat> building uh, with a valuation of 3.7 million um, an inch and a half water meter you can see that that range is pretty wild wildly from around 60,000 all the way up into the mid 400,000s so these represent fees in their entirety this would so what it would whatever uh, SDCs they have whether it's one two or five um, that would be the combination of all of those. Uh, and that's what you're seeing up here. So did I have any questions? Well, they're just really interesting numbers um, relative to, so you have your different average cost, based on costs, uh, you've got 250,000 valuation, 870,000 valuation, 3,700,000. And then you look at the, if we just looked at Beaverton, you'd see how wildly different like they are between multifamily and commercial office. I mean, yeah. commercial per dollar is way less. Uh, yeah, and something to keep know, in so mind here is that it's just interesting how, and then if you extrapolate all over the place, again, they are pretty wildly varying. They, they are, and something to keep in mind here is that um, these are uh, basically uh, meant to offset the impacts of the development, right? To, to the capacity, um, to, to supplement capacity uh, in the system. Uh, different jurisdictions could have different uh, capacity issues. For example, a, a Beaverton 
they might have a really high transportation SDC because they're noticing that some, they're getting a lot of large uh, commercial office buildings that um, are housing a lot of people. And so they've got really big parking lots. Uh, you may have a similar size office building, say somewhere in Forest Grove, but it might have one-tenth the amount of people. And so, as, as I indicated, each jurisdiction, um, after going through a study, tries to assess these in a fair manner that truly represents the impacts to their unique system. So not, not everybody's going to be the same. Everybody has a little bit different makeup when it comes to that. Okay. All right. So that, that brings us to next steps. So uh, the next, next steps um, can be city staff can provide additional information regarding SDCs uh, if needed for further discussion. Um, and city staff uh, can also work to find a financial consultant to assist with an SDC study and potential fee implementation. So what that might look like is uh, engineering staff issuing a, a request for qualifications to get financial consultant on board um, and then bringing a uh, scope fee and contract back to city council for consideration. Um, I think it is important to note kind of at this juncture that uh, in light of the COVID-19 emergency, uh, we understand that you know there isn't really a clear understanding on what kind of economic or development impact that this is going to have, uh, and then it could be viewed by some folks um, as implementation of uh, system development charges uh, could cause a further impact on that. Um, getting back to kind of what Brett said early on is that implementing these is not something we can snap our fingers and have done tomorrow. And a lot of other jurisdictions have implemented SDCs, uh, but then used some flexibility um, after they've been implemented to either defer, uh, reduce, or waive um, these types of charges uh, if absolutely needed to spur economic development. Um, and that would be, uh, at least in our opinion, maybe a more prudent way to proceed because again, one, one of those things can be done more rapidly uh, implementing if you have a number of large projects coming down the pipeline you're not gonna you know you're not gonna beat a project um, this is this does take time and so um, I just wanted to toss out there that out there because you know that, that is our reality now uh, that the economy is going to look different um, when we come out on the other side of this um, but we still feel that these are um, important uh, fees to, to consider implementing um, if that is the direction consider studying uh, and potentially implementing if that is the city council's direction. And questions? <laughs> After council's discussed, I'll, I know there's a few people that want to say something. We should have time for that. Um, I mean, you know, clearly infrastructure improvements cost, cost money and uh, when the city implements them, someone's going to pay and that's the ratepayers in the community. Um, so it, it, it gets paid for one way or the other, and it's really you know, it's that question of is it is it more effective in the long term to assess those charges directly to uh, new construction, and of course then that, that gets passed on to the the commercial or residential tenants of the buildings. It, it affects the cost, the prices that people pay to move into either new homes or new office buildings or the city pays for infrastructure up front or through a bond and then all ratepayers in the city pay. So it's that question of is it more equitable to distribute it across the entire taxpayer base of the community or to the people that are going to be um, 
occupying a new, a new building um, or benefiting from new capacity, such as the one we mentioned earlier at the former Astoria Warehousing Company. And I don't think there's super easy answers on the question of does it drive development away if you have these, if you implement these charges. Um, from the chart you showed us, it, they, if they go to Warrington, they don't, so you drive them to Warrington where they already have to pay $10,000 for a new single family home, or to Hillsborough where they have to pay $35,000 for a new single family home. Yeah, it's, an, it's a very interesting uh, question. How long has Warrington had SCCs? Do we know roughly? Is it a recent thing or has it been there for the last 10 years? Um, I don't know off the top of my head. I, I believe they've been there for at least the last 10 years, but I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I'm just curious because, you know, they, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of development. And recently I've, I've heard, you know, discussion about how um, they are having problems with their infrastructure. They can't keep up with with what the development has put upon them. So I'm glad that if they were there, that they were there so that it mitigates it to some level. But um, I don't know if we can talk to that at all or not. I mean, I, I guess well, one, I guess one kind of the general question is about SECs. And, and again, whenever this has come up, it seems like um, you know, the, when there's development, even with SDCs, the city's still sort of taking in the short. So it was still going to cost us money for development. The SDCs only help mitigate some of it, but don't really address the actual costs. Well, I, I think your first question's about Warrington. I, I'd hate to provide commentary on how another city does or, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know the ins and outs of other than just reading in the paper that Mayor Balancefer has said recently that maybe its system development charges should be increased yeah. um, to be able to cover some of these, these issues. Right. And just because it's not an easy thing to be to pick up the phone and call the city manager Linda Ingridson and say, hey, you know, what do you, what do you because it's their whole strategy and methodology for assessing this in the first place is, is, is a deep dive. And so it's it's there's always the look at okay what what are the what is the comparability in terms of other communities I mean you've got that in terms of okay well what are they charging what are they charging yeah um, you know anecdotally we are one of the largest cities in the state of Oregon that does not have system development charges if not the largest um, is what it, is what anecdotally is out there um, but uh, you know there's just been a, a a policy direction uh, throughout the years to not go into this into this foray to, to not go into the, the system development charge uh, issue. Um, your other questions were in terms of the next question was dealing with uh, um, well, yeah, it's just oh, oh, the cost of development. The cost of so, yeah, cost of the, the cost of development. So 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 typically. Um, you look at residential development does not pay for itself because particularly single-family residential development because you have a lot of infrastructure which has to be put in place with roads, pipes, and the maintenance of those in the future. But typically that doesn't 
there's not a, the property tax revenue from those superfund residences doesn't pay for itself. But you need places for people to live, and you need places for, you know, you know, and we're required by the state to, to be able to provide that. So, but typically, you know, commercial or particularly industrial development is where you have more of your revenue generation for property taxes, which okay. helps cover it, cover things more. And it's really the commercial and industrial side of things. So, it, which it, this actually brought up another question to me here. So, with when you talk about the residential development, I can see. So, you have a whole new development like the one out of Tom Point. So, it's all brand new, all new infrastructure, roads, pretty much. Um, and then you have a lot up here on the hill that somebody's going to build a house. Are they going to be treated in the same way? Are they going to have the same system development charges because of residential? I mean, how is, is there a difference between what would be applied to a development that has no existing so infrastructure as opposed to one that has existing infrastructure? Typically, uh, typically how I've seen it in, in jurisdictions that I've worked for that have system development charges that's applied equally, but I don't know if there's a, if there yeah, is so, a. So that's correct, and the reasoning is that the, the new subdivision has to follow city standards, it has to be developed, you know, infrastructure has to be installed to support that for the subdivision. Right. Those system development charges get assessed uh, most typically when each one of the lots is developed. And so when a sub subdivision goes in place, it's not connected directly to our water source and directly to our sewer plant, and so there's water line that's feeding it. So even though they're maybe putting in a brand new eight or 12 inch water line, there's still water line that connects to that through our distribution system. Same site on the sewer, there's collection pipes that in many cases um, will go to a pump station or a force main that lead to our treatment plant. And so they, they typically are um, assessed in a, in a similar manner, obviously um, contingent on that specific type of development, whether it's multifamily or single family, uh, because they're having um, in a lot of cases, a similar impact on our system. Right. Well, I get that. I'm, I guess my, my, my question is, again, old, building a house where there's already existing old infrastructure that's been there for the last 50 years versus the new one. Right. But, but I think just adding infrastructure. Yes, but again, as, as Nathan was saying, this stuff, our problem may be the end of the line, the sewer treatment plant. Okay. It may be the production of the water up at the watershed. And so, you know, even having those additional impacts happening, you know, while there's existing infrastructure in a neighborhood, or if a developer builds a subdivision, that subdivision infrastructure is going to be paid for by the developer. But then there's how does the water get to the subdivision? How does the sewer go away from the subdivision? Um, are the actually the the things that system development charges are really meant to be able to help cover those capacity issues? And, Bigger it sounds like you were trying to get at our SDCs customized for each different project. Like this house is going to end up costing the city more than this other house, so do we give them a higher charge? And I think it sounds like probably it's typically as a form of residential, 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 regardless of right. The well, I, again, I'm hearing that, and I'm I hear what you're saying. I'm just once again, and you said it at the end of the line, but it's, um, you know, if, if I if I'm going to build my house up at this one lone lot up here on 8th Street by itself, um, 
when I get charged that system development, when I'm just plugging into a system that's already been created to accommodate that lot, previously I'm going to feel that I've been treated unfairly. And it, as opposed to being in a new development where so, so you know, I know that there's new systems and new demands being created that didn't exist in the past. So let me give a scenario that was in the paper recently, the discussion about uh, a new residential development proposal over near the Port of Astoria. Um, and in that article in the Daily Astoria paper, it stated one of the issues that's going to have to be looked at is water demand for that. So there's existing infrastructure there. But the thing is, um, there may be situations where the new development or where the existing infrastructure is located may not be able to be enough Sure. To, to accommodate that. And so, and so, so there's an impact, even though the infrastructure's there, the roads are there, pipes are there, there's going to be impacts on the whole system. One of the things that a system development charge is able to do, and when I worked at the city of Hillsborough, what happened very frequently is you may have had a developer that needed to extend a, a water line to be able to serve their project but maybe the city wanted it to be upsized to be able to provide additional capacity for the greater need of the community. And there would be this participation where the city would use their system development charge funds to be able to partner uh, on that, to be able to get something that, because the only thing that we can require now if someone's doing a development is what will serve their, their project. We have no resource to be able to say, okay, we feel as though there's something greater needed to be able to serve the future of the community and we don't have a funding resource to be able to do that. Okay. Actually I had a question maybe along those lines, but uh, obviously when hearing about these, um, you know, you start to think about the impact that it will have on developers, especially around the conversation with affordable housing. Um, is our SDCs something that we could potentially waive as an incentive or reduce as far as if we are trying to collaborate with the developer on creating something like affordable housing? That comes a policy decision by the city council okay. as to you know how you want to treat it if it's if there would be some sort of incentive for affordable housing meeting some threshold. Okay, yeah, I, I, I t when I attended the last, the annual League of Oregon Cities conference, I did go to one session where this was pretty much talked about the entire time. Um, and from what I remember, Ben had some of the highest SDCs in the state. And uh, collectively, I think people were pretty surprised that Astoria didn't have this in place already. And, and the kinds of questions came up like what you were mentioning about, well, who who does pay for this? Because yeah. it it if it doesn't if if we don't have these kind of things in place, um, it, is it then deferred to the taxpayers? Of course. Um, so it's that was talked about a lot in in the session. Okay, so just on that, just one thing that you, I'm not. It's not going to. It's not unique to Ben, mm -hmm. but it's not a situation that we have here. Right. Is that they have a separate parks and recreation district that charges their own system development charges, 
And so the city of Bend may choose to reduce system development charges, but in there, as I understand it, the Bend Parks and Recreation District, which was separate from the city of Bend, was not reducing system development charges. And so you had a difference, some differences in perspectives between boards. Here, um, the city of Astoria City Council has oversight of the Parks Department. So I mean, I know, um, I know at least in some of the things that really came up was Ben Parks and Rec District, which is like Sunset Empire. That's interesting. Um, had their own system development charges that the city of Ben had zero say Okay. Yeah, it, they at the at that session um, they did talk about uh, again waiving SDCs as a as a potential incentive um, for building certain types of housing for particular economic brackets. But um, but again, you know, surprised that Astoria uh, lacked that ability completely. Joan, did you want to say anything? Um, no, I just meant to ask my question was whether we could choose to waive or discount SDC for an affordable housing developer. That's okay. it for me. If anyone uh, wants to speak, you can come up to the podium and just. I just have a quick question. question. Okay. Um, has there been any studies, or has anybody looked at any studies of what possible downward pressure? Uh, the um, SDCs would have on development, like obviously it's another layer of uh, cost that a developer or builder have to incur in order to pursue their project. Is, is there been any studies about how that might affect development in general, applying downward pressure to it, making things less desirable? I know like a lot of large development companies flow to different areas depending on what the regulations are. Spectrum of permissive to restrictive, you know, they float in more areas that are more permissive. I mean, I would, I would assume anything that the cost of a project is going to put, you know, downward pressure on the eagerness of a developer to pursue that particular project. Uh, this would be one of those things. So, I, they did actually talk about that in the session that I was in, um, and I'll see if I can find the the link because I know that those were all recorded. Because uh, that obviously was a concern. Is this going to halt or reduce development? Um, it was interesting. It, it didn't seem to, at least that's how I remember it, but it did end up resulting in, um, as, as Mayor Jones said, higher costs to the tenants or people renting the office spaces or things like that. Because of what a lot of people said was that, of course, it has to pencil out for the developer, and in order for that to happen, if there are increased fees, um, it did impact maybe how much the, the rents were or, or things like that. Yeah. So I mean, if you look at, you know, say, yeah. Asteroid versus Warrington, for example, so if, if someone's choosing to put up a 15 apartment complex either here or there, I mean, this the cost of the property in the city of Astoria and the city of Warrington. It's probably more expensive here to buy the property. Tax rate, property tax rate is going to be higher here than Warrington. So those two things are both going to drive them to Warrington. Now, they have to decide that 
it's worth it. It's still cheaper to build in Warrington than Astoria because even, even with the SDCs, they're going to have to pay there. So they're getting there, I assume. And there's probably a number of other factors. I don't think the cost of labor is going to be different in Warrington than here because it's the same people working in Warrington and here. So I don't know what other uh, factors are going to come into it. Yeah, but, I mean materials, but that's... That's going to be the same yeah. in both places. Now, in terms of, um, you know, we've talked in the past about these scratcher heads, geez, aren't there any incentives we can provide someone to build affordable housing? Well, we have no incentives to offer. The only incentives we would have is if we had city property, we could give somebody at a reduced rate uh, to build for free. Uh, and they just, or if you had an SDC, you can offer a, to waive it. But right now, we can't waive SDC as an incentive because we don't have an SDC. So, I mean, there's a benefit there in having an SDC just so you can waive it for a project that you want more than some other project. I just wanted to add, uh, this is a very good question. Um, and one of the things that, um, like anything else, there's, there's going to be a whole spectrum of different projects that have different situations. So, for example, the, the project next door, they're probably looking at every, every penny. I mean, it's critical when you're trying to do low um, housing to, to be bringing it as low as possible. Um, and then we have developers that we know of that are developing exactly the same apartment complex they did in Lincoln City, for example, that have that already budgeted in and they're just surprised, oh, I don't have to pay that? And, and they were all prepared to pay that. I mean, it's what they do. It's, it's, that's the program just about everywhere else in the city our size or larger. And they're, and they're used to that and it's already in their, in their budget. So there's going to be a, a totally wide spectrum. And I don't think the intention is to discourage anything, especially housing prices and things like that. But at the end of the day, the, the work has to be done. We have these projects, these capital projects that are going to have to be done. Somebody's going to have to pay for them. And this is, to me, more of an equity question of who's paying for it. Is it going to get passed on to the ratepayers? Um, we already have the CSO surcharges hitting the ratepayers. That's going to be there for a while. And, and what's more equitable for it to be paid um, partially by it? Or, or the rate payer eventually. It's like, like you, you said, uh, Mayor Jones, um, it, you know, at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for it. And we have a deferred maintenance program with so much deferred maintenance that we're trying to play catch up on everything. And the other thing that came to mind when Nathan was talking too was that um, what this, this would be a tool in our, our financial toolbox that would help us leverage more funds. You know, we, we presented to you before that we brought in between different departments, about $35 million in grant money in the last 10 years. Um, every uh, grant opportunity, we, we, we told you at that time too that we're becoming um, uh, match restricted. We don't have a lot of money ourselves to be paying these matches anymore. So if a grant opportunity came by, say for a you know, million dollars and it was a 10% match, we, we, we need $100,000 to realize another 900. Every dollar we can bring in um, helps, it helps the ratepayers and, and the taxpayers in the long run. So that's I think that's a, a really good point too, because um, if we are looking at grant funding, which I know that Public Works does a tremendous amount of and that the city has really good relationships with um, any number of, of grantors, um, if we are looking to generate more funding for projects, again, affordable housing is the thing that comes up a lot, um, those a lot of times do require a, around a 40 to 50 percent match and so I, I think that's a really good point to bring up as far as being able to leverage more funding in those types of specifically those types of situations 
and, and we're not unique here either. You know, this is where we, we think sometimes, I think you kind of brought up uh, to me the, the idea that, um, you know, we're a community like communities all across the country that are suffering from a lot of deferred maintenance. Um, that we have a lot of catch up to do. And, and we can't do it with, with the tax base that we have. We can't do it with the uh, funding, you know, the revenue flow that we have. It's just not enough. And, and we need to continue to find ways to do that. And that so the idea of leveraging and, and attack, attacking that back structure uh, as much as possible or freeing up dollars to go after it that might otherwise be spent elsewhere. So. Um, I think it's really an important consideration, and, and this has been a trend for years to not fund uh, infrastructure. And we, it's you know, we, it's time to pay the piper. Somebody's got to do it, and uh, we got to figure out ways to do it. So I'd like to see us uh, you continue the work of doing the analysis. Did Joe, Joe, did you have any something you wanted to add? Oh no. So Nathan, really kind of next steps uh, is really from this conversation, we'll look at start reaching out to firms um, that do this type of work, um, you know, gather more information, um, and be looking at um, you know, really kind of putting together some sort of proposals is, is yeah, what we look at. Yeah, that next step would be doing a request for qualifications getting somebody on board and bringing that contract, the scope fee and contract back to city council for consideration before we execute it and, and move forward. Can, can I get a copy of that presentation maybe from Jen? Yes, yeah. where's the summary? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Guys, one last thing that I think will help, help Nathan too is 
um, as we talk to um, a consultant about helping us with this, to what degree do you want the public process? How robust do you want the public process? Because we, we do care about what the, um, the builders have to say and the impacts on them. I think we need to hear from them. No, absolutely. I would, I would expect it to be uh, the first time you bring it to the city council at a you know, council meeting that it would be advertised in advance and there's plenty of opportunity for anyone to speak pro, con, or impartial. So maybe like a workshop type forum or something. I believe that there's some, in that SDC study, I think there's some guidelines about requirements for public involvement through the development of the study. And so, and certainly we can come back to city council and we present that uh, contract with that information about what does that look like? It would be in the scope and kind of show, you know, what does that public involvement look like? And if it's not adequate enough, we can certainly add additional scope to cover whatever comfort level everyone has. Yeah, the expectation is fully transparent with plenty of opportunity for comment. So, yep. however that is accomplished. Right, agreed. Okay, so the next agenda item is dealing with parklets. And some of you um, may recall, some maybe a, this may be a newer agenda item. Uh, there was a direction provided by councils a number of years ago to develop a uh, temporary parklet program for our downtown. And because uh, we had um, one that was proposed and uh, the direction from council was to come back uh, at some point and have a review and a report in terms of how uh, this temporary policy is, has fared. And so uh, Barbara Fryer, um, she is uh, telecommuting today, and Barbara is going to go through this PowerPoint presentation. And Barbara, I've got the clicker, so if you want to tell me when to um, move forward and advance the slide, I'll do so. Okay, if you could advance to the next one, so this is the introduction. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, this was proposed to be allowed downtown, etc. 
intersects Marine Drive, Commercial Street, Duane Street, and Exchange Street, which are um, affected by ODOT and are our primary um, transportation route. Also, only the fronting property owner or business could apply for the permit. So, um, if you're on, say, Marine Drive, you couldn't apply for a um, parklet on 14th. You would have to have it in front of your storefront. Next slide. So, these items are all the pilot requirements. So the first one is that ADA would be required for Americans with Disability Act, so allowing for people in wheelchairs to access the site, um, available 24 hours a day, year-round, and most importantly, removable. Um, one space per block to make sure that we're not blocking too many parking spaces or um, too many um, obstacles for traffic. Adequate drainage um, is important to allow for flow through drainage underneath the parklet. Um, a, a minimum of 20 feet from a street corner to allow for visibility. Um, structure corners must have reflectors so that at night oncoming cars can see that there is uh, obstruction in the right of way. Um, rubber wheel stops at both ends of the parklet. Um, clean and well maintained. Not over the top of water valves or adjacent to fire hydrants or other utilities so that everybody has access to those utilities. Um, the pilot requires that the applicant insure the structure and list the city as an insured um, party so that um, if something happens at the parklet, the um, city would, would be insured. No merchandise would be allowed to be sold on the parklet. However, um, typically um, in other jurisdictions where a parklet is located, it is frequently adjacent to a restaurant and people could come with a drink and sit and enjoy the parklet. Um, but intent, the intent is not to have it as a, an adjunct um, space for sale of goods and services. Um, the next one is that no utilities that require wires or conduits crossing the, utility, crossing the sidewalk will be allowed. And that's for tripping hazards and for hazards in general in terms of different types of um, infrastructure, um, especially electrical infrastructure. Um, the parklets were not allowed to have roofs. Um, building permits may be required for ADA compliance. And then the last requirement was that all property owners on the block would have input, not a veto, but an input, input into the parklet. With regard to the existing parklet, we have one on 11th Street. Um, the items on the right indicate whether the requirement was implemented or not. So right now, ADA compliance is not implemented. Um, 
the next one not implemented is adequate drainage. We do have some ponding on the southerly end of the parklet. The rubber wheel stop at the south end of the parklet is not maintained. It is pushed up against the parklet, and so it would not stop somebody from hitting their bumper on the parklet. Um, with regard to ensuring the structure, I did not have the time to ensure to research whether this is insured. The city is listed as an insured, rather. Um, and then, with regard to utilities, there are wires that cross the sidewalk from the Jason business to light the um, the parklet. And again, ADA compliance is needed and. Um, I was not able to find out, based on the materials that I had available to me, um, whether additional property owners had any input regarding that parklet. So next slide. The question is, how should we proceed? Now, knowing that um, the COVID virus is out there, we don't intend to cite anybody or um, ask for removal at this point in time. But these are options for you to consider, keeping in mind that we are putting off administrative, or not administrative, but legislative changes to the development code um, so that we can minimize the number of people that are in our hearing situations. Um, so these are three options. We could consider codifying the current requirement. We could continue to allow at this one location and enforce those five areas where the um, requirements are not compliant. Or we could require removal. And um, so or we could, the fourth one is to consider codifying requirements with some additional ideas. So at that point, I'll leave it open for questions. Well, thank you, Barbara. Yeah, the first question I would have, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm completely agnostic on the issue. Um, so I would just want to know, is, are they, what does the community feel? Are they used that, uh, on days when it's not raining? Is there usually, are there people using the parklets? Are they getting a lot of use? Do the business owners on the street still enjoy having it there or are they complaining they want a, an extra parking space freed back up again um you know I, I have no personal opinion on it i would just want to know does it make sense for the community and i just i haven't gotten any feedback from anybody one way or other about it, so i don't have any idea Is, can anyone speak to that barbara um i So uh, what I would say is I think that you know, when this all went through, this was a, 
Um, there were people that loved parklets, and there were people who hated parklets. Uh, and I think that it, you, know, you had people on both sides of the issue. I think, and Mayor, you asked about you know business owners. If you notice, the the council's policy doesn't talk about business owners; it talks about property owners. So I think there may be some question there as well as where there's some differences in uh, what the property owner may feel versus um, an emerging. So yeah, but what, the, way the, the way the council had set this up was uh, for, to address property owners. So well, I have received uh, via text. I mean, feedback from. Uh, Dulcie Taylor and Sarah Lou from ADHDA that uh, expressed that they were in favor of parklets. That's really the only, I think like you, I, I mean, I don't have strong thoughts either way. I, I would like to see us keep the one that's already there um, and potentially enforce some of those requirements, I, I think the main one for me would be uh, ADA accessibility. Um, I think my question is, is that are there, I don't anticipate a lot of business or property owners, and I'm sorry, is it the business owner that applies for the permit or the property, property owner? Okay. Um, are there a fair amount of property owners that are interested in Having parklets, or are you just talking about? We, we, well, at the time, um, in 2016, parklets were the rage nationwide, uh, and so, um, and we had a property owner that wanted to build one, and so the property owner petitioned the city council, and the city council added this as an agenda item, so it, it came forward. Um, I'm not aware of really any other property owner. Um, there was some talk at the time, but no one else has really come forward seriously wanting to do a seven. Because under the current policy, uh, the council was going to allow two in downtown. Only one was ever built. Okay, yeah, that, I think that would be my request. Again, I, I would like to see the one that's in place stay. Um, I like it, I think it's done well doesn't necessarily matter what I think about it entirely though, uh, but I would, if we were going to go with option one, I think which was to codify um, the current requirements, it's not like I think these would pop up all over the place, but I, I do think, I'd be interested in what you guys think about a limitation on the number of them. I'd be more in favor of just option two, saying, well, it, you know, keep this one, that's fine, but let's don't create a whole new code for parklets, because I don't, I don't feel that there's any community demand to create more parklets. It's a quirky, fun little thing. If no one's objecting to it, then let's just keep it. Um, I hate to create a city infrastructure around and more workload on the staff to regulate these things. It would if we did go with option two, would it be possible then for if someone say was interested in doing one more, would they then have the option to petition the current council? I, I would say, well, I would say that if, if you're keeping everything in place, there's still just a temporary policy in place, which allows two. 
From staff work perspective, do you have a preference? Because again, I think you're hearing from a lot of us that we're pretty agnostic. You know, we really don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. Yeah, we, I'll tell you that, um, that this has really not been a huge issue for staff. Um, there have been the concerns about the ADA issue and also about the, the wire running across the sidewalk. Um, it, that's coming up as a separate topic. No, no, this is this is a wire taped to the sidewalk. Right, they, they, they are, in order to have power, oh, they light to light up the parklet. Is, there are lights on the parklet, and the current, the current policy that was developed by council said that there would be no utilities that require wires or conduit crossing the carpet sidewalk. That is currently not in compliance with the one that's there presently. That there is a wire taped to the sidewalk. Now I, I brought this I brought this up recently the idea of maybe a couple times over the past six months or so you know well are we going to review this because it's on it's a reviewable situation and, and we need to deal with it so that that's my main reason for having it up there that being said um, and and I like it. <laughs> you know, and, and initially, I know that like the first year it was in there, not many people use it, and, and it's been, you know, fixed up over time. It keeps adding little things to it and, and making it a little bit more quirkier, a little bit more fun. And I know that last summer, I did note that a lot of people were stomping and, and sitting and enjoying the sun and whatever, taking a break in the day, or a lot of times it's just a couple of, a, a, couple of people and, and one of them's in Imogen wandering around, the other one's just waiting for them to get done. You know, it's, it's like a waiting room for, for out there. Um, I use it that way sometimes. And um, my concern is twofold. It's, um, one is if we allow this one to continue, I, I think we need to have a mechanism to review other people who might come along to entertain it because they will say, well, you allowed this property owner. Um, you know, we here at such and such a business on such and such a side street could see how this could enhance our business. And we would really like to do it too. Um, so I think there's a fairness issue that, because it enhances his, the property owner over there owns both sides of the street and it helps enhance his whole sort of interactive business model or whatever you want to call it. So I have a, the sort of the fairness and I, I, I would think that at least having a mechanism for review of uh, and maybe limited to just one more. Maybe, which is the current policy. Which is the current policy and, and maybe that's fine and, and that it has to be on approval. Of course, um, uh, if if we keep all of these uh, particular requirements in, in mind, that we do need to enforce it, and um, because that's another thing, the property owner has sort of been very liberal and taken free license to do whatever it wants down there, and 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 it's created some potential issues that need we need to re respond to, and I think that's important. So the ADA compliance is that just about getting from the curb, so it's it's. It would, we're not, going to, we're not going to allow them to make permanent, permanent modifications like grinding the curb, so they would have to put it in just a wooden ramp, right? Yeah, so the, the issue about ADA accessibility is because it's public right-of-way, 
if there were an ADA claim, it would come to the city of Astoria. Yeah. That's that's the that's the the reason why um, that was placed in there is so that if if someone said, you know, this is not and, and as we, far as we, we would be the ones dealing with. And as far as the drainage complaint, again, we don't want them to make permanent modifications. So how do they how do they modify the ponding, the the yeah. uh, pooling issue, if um, if we're not going to allow them to pave it and slope it? Um, it may be looking at the construction and are there blockages underneath the the uh, the um, parklet that's preventing water flow along the curb line. Right. You can do you can do a curb height platform. For instance. Many times these are hollow underneath, mm -hmm. right? So you can let things flow underneath and, and, and be above the fray. Okay. You know, it's just a design thing. My purpose would be to leave the pilot project in place and require uh, adherence to the uh, to the requirements. Well, I think we, but I think we need to modify. We we can't keep if we're going to allow. We need to have something on the books that says we allow it, not that it's a temporary. I mean, you, maybe you can. Dissect that a little bit more, but just 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 so that we're on the other side. What's easiest for the staff to manage yeah. this? Because we're we're just I don't want to create any more burden on staff for something that's to me is kind of a silly thing. That was kind of my question. Is it is is it easier for someone to essentially petition the council or go through the temporary licensing procedure, or we can keep we can keep a temporary policy in place. Okay. Understanding that it can be revoked. That would be my Okay. And then ensuring that the you know that the conditions be met. And I'm wanting to look at the folks who who deal with right away issues, and I see head nodding here. So okay. temporary policy does allow for for one more. That's so right. Walking yeah. anyway. Yeah. And That's when that happens, then we can consider some of these other things. Okay. I mean, it's not like it's tough to expect. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I, that's, that's, and uh, yeah, 
again, a solar from light. light. The solar light could replace um, not what's overhead, but what's uh, lower down. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Correct. Just, right. Okay. Good. Okay. Okay. We've got what you need from us. Okay, Barbara, do you have any other questions or direction? No, I think that's very clear. Um, I will reach out to Jimbo and and see what we can do to, to bring it into compliance and um, especially with regard to the drainage, the ADA compliance and the extension cord across the sidewalk. Yeah. And and while Jimbo DeFeo was the, the building owner, most of the work was done by Jeff Daly. And so, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of the design, the whole design, a lot of the work, it was, it was Jeff who had done a lot of that uh, to, to implement, right? So, insurance maybe work too. Yeah, no, we'll verify on the insurance that we have that. We have that. So that's something that, that we'll definitely want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, then I would just want to add, I would just want to add that it is charming and I appreciate that this has been added to downtown because it is unique. So I wanted to know that. Okay. Okay. Thank so, you. So then next item is lights over streets. And when when the issue of uh, parklets was brought, was there's a request from his council Brown said said a request to be able to bring this forward. Um, this is an issue that uh, staff had been working on for, for some time and I asked the mayor if we could, if we're going to talk about parklets, that we talk about this as well um, because we are now receiving code enforcement complaints from citizens and the lights over the streets are, are technically prohibited by city code. And so we're wanting to be able to have a discussion and a dialogue with council as to your direction on how to move forward with this. There are situations where there can be lights across uh, rights of way and they have been permitted, um, but, uh, but they're, uh, I'll let Barbara uh, and potentially Nathan be able to chime in on, on this issue. So Barbara, take it away. Okay, great. If we can move to the slide with an introduction. Yep, we're there.
come from any tree above ground. So keep that in mind. It, there's a lot of information in that citation, but the issue is that decorative lighting shall not cross any tree above ground. And then the second idea, second reason why is that we currently have non-compliance with our requirements, and then we have a new request. And so we want to revisit this issue. The next slide talks about what are our existing conditions. We have three locations where we have um, lighting. The first one is 11th Street between commercial and marine, um, right around the area that we were just discussing. You can see the parklet, and actually there's a person in the parklet. Um, the 13th Street Alley. Um, so the first thing that you'll note between the two slides or two pictures is one is a right of way with car traffic. The other one is a pedestrian alley. The third item is at the 11th Street street end. Um, and you'll note that it is strong between two buildings just as one is over um, 11th Street between commercial and marine, but you're not getting constant traffic um, underneath. So the next slide. And, and Barbara, uh, hey Barbara, yes. I also want to note there is an, there's an, another location not quite as extensive, but it's over um, at the foot of 9th uh, for Bowie uh, 8th Street. 8th, 8th Street, um, over at uh, the foot of 8th, there's um, overhead lights um, by Bowie Beer. It's not across from building to building, but there's some... Over the outdoor seating area? Correct, correct. Uh, it's not to that extent either, so... Okay, Barbara, we move to the lighting over street concern slide. Okay. So, the next slide talks about concerns. The first concern is for public safety. Um, the lights that are strung over 11th Street near the parklet include electrical cords that are strung together without weather protection, and the lights themselves are not rated for outdoor commercial use. You can see in the graphic on the right, um, residential grade people lights, and it says permanent on State Street. That's from a study, and then commercial grade people lights for trees. So you can kind of see the difference um, in the type of light. Um, the second item having to do with public safety is height hazards. There have been three anecdotal incidents with the light and overheight vehicles. I was not here, so I don't know um, that what I heard, though, is that there were three different incidences. One where the lights were taken out by a vehicle that was oversized, too tall. The lights were raised. And then I understand that there was a, a gentleman who climbed up to the top of his RV while the, the wife drove the RV, and he carefully lifted each so that it would clear his RV as she drove down the street. Seems perfectly legit. So, <laughs> it is a hazard. Um, 
do with if it relates to the visible acuity of a driver in the fog and mist. So as you're looking south, or north rather, and you're approaching the um, commercial street intersection, you can lose the light because the, the overhead lights appear as halos in the fog and mist. And so you can almost miss the traffic signal. So those are the three main public safety um, hazards. The next issue has to do with um, public work staff safety. Um, let's say that a water main breaks in 11th Street and they need to bring equipment to address the emergency issue. The height of the lighting as it currently stands would not allow some of the larger equipment to work um, without fear of hitting the light. The other thing is that um, when staff work around electrical lines, they must stay at least 10 feet away from workers to limit potential electric shock. And so it may be that we wouldn't be able to work on um, a potential sewer um, main break or a wire main break in that location. The third issue is that a ladder truck may not be able to rescue someone where the overhead lights are located without having first taken the lights down. And then the lights can also impede the ability to fight fires. So those are some significant concerns about overhead lighting in the right of way. Um, the next slide talks about um, considerations for lighting use and design in downtown. Hey, hey Barbara, Barbara, yes. before you go on to that, can you touch on some of the code enforcement complaints that we've been receiving also about lights from the, the hillside? Yes, yes, sorry, I um, skipped over that on my notes. Um, so the, the current concern is that we do have a section in the development code that talks about lights shall be downcast um, and shall not spill um, light onto public rights of way. And we have at least one um, about these lights in general and then we have a couple of complaints about specific concerns about the brightness of those lights um, so we have had code enforcement concerns and was it all three of the locations that you mentioned or was it just one in particular it's just one in particular the 11th street um, between commercial and um, Dwayne. Right. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yes, and the lights, I should note that the lights are significantly different on that on that um, intersection. Um, they are the bigger globe lights as opposed to the lights that are the small twinkle lights intended for um, wrapping around trees during um, holiday season. 
So it does produce a lot more light. Okay. You mean the light like spark light? Yes. Okay. Okay, are you yeah. ready for me? I think we're ready. Yes, I think we're ready. Okay. We're now on project uh, for public spaces and light and use design slide. Okay, so um, their recommendations are to look at a photometric analysis. So you kind of look at how much light is being emitted and what types of colors do you want to, um, what color spectrum do you want those lights to create? What kind of ambiance do you want in your downtown? Um, having the lights at a street scale. Um, Taking into consideration the street character, do you want lights on the trees? Do you want lights over the street? And um, so trying to get that as a clear indication. And then compatibility and coordination. That's one of the big issues that they talk about in their on their website. And it's um, making sure that you have a coordinated theme throughout your downtown and that you're not getting completely different lights everywhere. Um, and then considering existing conditions. Um, can you plug in the light bulbs? Can you plug into um, street facades? So um, they also note that too much lighting can be just as bad as too little. And that the lighting should relate to the functions of a particular space. So if you have a an event space that um, is underlit, um, like the pedestrian alley, it's appropriate to have lights over the top. Um, if you have a space that is a parklet, it may be appropriate to have lighting. It may but what type of lighting is the, the key issue? And then ways to use the lighting in your downtown are to highlight landscaping, to eliminate transit stops, to create a feel for entrances and edges of your downtown, um, to highlight different retail displays um, or architectural details, to highlight different signs. Um, and to highlight focal points in the city. So, um, next slide um, about UL listings or year-round lights. This is really important for um, any of the lights that are placed in downtown um, that are intended for um, long-term use. And it requires an increased minimum American wire gauge size, which means that the, the wire from light to light to light to light is wider. It also has more insulation and thickness to the um, conduit that's inside. It also provides for additional flexing so that as year-round um, weather events happen, it can, it can weather the storm. Um, it has more rigid train receipt testing. So um, it tests 
they test it more for those different weather conditions. And then it also has different safety instructions and markings. And that's really important if we want to stay downtown. The next um, slide shows um, some recommendations that were given to Carlsbad Village when they did a decorative pedestrian lighting study. And um, the first recommendation has to do with State Street, and they recommended replacing residential grade, excuse me, twinkle lights with commercial grade twinkle lights for trees. And then along Grand Avenue, they suggested a specific polycarbonate protective globe, thicker sockets, and specific wattage and color temperature, which would give you the, the light without causing the glare and without causing um, too, too much over, over light. The last one had to do with adding LED lights parallel to the street and mounted to LED pedestrian lampposts. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is a pedestrian lighting study could be beneficial for our downtown to create an ambiance or a feel downtown at night. It could help with some of the um, the activity at night so that it's more activated for positive activity. Um, but that the lighting would be um, approved by the city and would be safe. The two photos to the left show two different types of, uh, I can't say the first word, but I think it's catenary table mounted lighting. One of them is in Tacoma, and the other one's in Boston. And I think what's important to note about both of these different lights is you can see how tall up they are. Um, they're about two-thirds of the way up the third story of those buildings in terms of um, the Tacoma photos. Um, so they're much higher than what we have today on 11th Street. And then the second photo is in a pedestrian um, pedestrian uh, plaza, and so they can be lower to the ground. Um, I think that perhaps partnering with um, ADHDA sometime in the future to do a pedestrian lighting study would be important for a number of reasons, but that's an option that we could do. Um, the county electrical inspector on the next slide. Um, I spoke with him about um, concerns over overhead lighting. And he said that to meet electrical code, that the lighting has to be at least 18 feet in the air to allow for passage of vehicles. It had to have guide wires. It had to be commercial lighting, not from your typical hardware or discount or other store. So you can see the type of lighting on the bottom of the two photos. The top right photo is again of the residential grade single lighting, but the bottom one shows the, the, the commercial grade 
required students to use electricity, not using extension cords. Extension cords are really not safe. And that someone secure an electrical permit to get these lights installed. So the options are to consider partnering with ADHDA to develop a pedestrian lighting study. Um, consider continuing the current ban on overstreet lighting in the right-of-way, not at street ends um, until the study is completed. And consider uh, directing staff to explore allowing lighting in certain circumstances um, such as not a loadout rights away, away from traffic light, um, and again, we would have to have some specific criteria about what away from traffic light means, how far away, um, and requiring an applicant to secure an electrical permit compliant with the electrical code. So, from my perspective, I think that the lighting adds character. However, there are some limitations that as a city, um, we should follow to make sure that the project is safe. And with that, I'll leave it open to questions. Thank you. And uh, we'll take a five minute recess and then discuss.
but no, they're not in the car by themselves, and there's nobody within 50 miles of you sometimes. No, that's what she was telling us. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah, um, yeah it just sometimes it does. Uh, we both share. And I'm sure they have people trained for Marine and people that aren't, and it's hard to interchange them. But man, at some point, I think priorities would take the street over, you know, a couple of fish that might be. Yeah, but well, they um, quarter inch too small or something. Right now, the coronavirus, they um, kicked all their detectives out and put them in the patrol. So they called oh, all the drugs. Yeah. Anybody that's not doing drugs. Well, okay. if they're on patrol, there's a chance they're not running some drugs drug transport them in because you know, they, they have the eye for it, right? They yeah. Have to well, they, they, or they know who they're looking for. Well, I think awesome. they did. I think they did it because they're anticipating people um, in quarantine or this work. They've got, you know, they're bumping up their numbers on patrol to factor in some losses. You guys still there? I love hearing you. Oh, hi, Jim. We're on a quick break. Mm -hmm. oh. oh, I knew you were. I got quiet. <laughs> I'll, I'll visit downtown, by the way. It's beautiful. It's a little... Well, I know that. It's, <laughs> it's a little <laughs> quiet. <laughs> quiet. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're... Uh, seems to be kind of in a different, I mean, so clearly no, no one seems to object to the way it is now. I think it looks great. And um, of course, theoretically, next week they could take those lights down and put up some big 
you know, obnoxious bright lights, and maybe I guess that means we need to put something in place that yeah. will prevent them from doing that. Well, yeah, but there's a permit, so those have so the pedestrian alley. They were permitted. Have been permitted. Okay. Correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so so that there there has been coordination there. I mean, there, there, well, there was a lot of coordination there. In that yeah. whole project and the lights, yeah. it seems to me. We, we actually have, a, the city has an MOA, a memorandum of agreement with the ADHDA associated with their uh, uh, installation and maintenance of those lights in that location. Okay. Uh, it outlines responsibilities of, of both ADHDA and the city And then, Nathan, on the, the, the license to occupy for Bowie that was approved by council, did it include those lights as well? The, the license to occupy was for the, um, uh, I think the address. The, the, for the, the hotel, yeah, so it didn't, it, include it, it didn't include those lights, but there is an um, expectation that as the street ends get done, we are going to be approaching the other owners of their various portions of street end and right of way uh, to cover primarily the street end and the maintenance of that with uh, a license to occupy, and part of that would probably touch on overhead things like lights and, and, and who's responsible for maintenance. But, as that said, the buoy beer did come in and get a right-of-way permit for the installation of those specifically. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so for the alley, um, when they got the permit for those lights, we the, the topic of whether they were residential grade or commercial grade, that just didn't come up at the time. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, think that particular topic was discussed. I believe there's some a catch-all in there that they need to be appropriate for the installation and use. Um, and so whether, um, I, and I don't know um, actually what, what grade those are or if they're well listed, but we can follow up with the ADHA. I, mean, I guess I generally agree with Barbara's uh, concise summaries that they add ambiance to the community. They're kind of a good thing writ large, but you want to have them be not those uh, cheap Walmart Christmas tree lights. You want them to be commercial grade lights and an adequate height to allow your your ladder truck to get under them clearly and whatever the code says. So I would I would agree. I, I like them in general. I think that we need to tighten the requirements for commercial grade and having them hardwired, not plugged into an extension cord, and then. Um, whether the ADHD, we can't direct ADHD to do a study, but be worthwhile to do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, to me, it seems like a compliance and standardization issue, if you will, of, of just trying to get uh, entities that do have the lighting in place or that are interested in putting lighting up, that they be of a certain type and professionally installed in compliance with any code that the city has in place. So, so, but, but on that, are you, are you differentiating, because right now the lights that are across 11th Street are prohibited by the city of Astoria currently. So the question is, do you wish to... Prohibited because they cross the right of way? They're street. So it's not the type of light. Well, it's like, the yes, yes, right? and... Light streams that? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and aren't they, aren't they too low as well? Yeah, I see. So, yeah. so the third. Please. Go ahead.
fed by electrical source. The second is that they are not commercial grade, and the third is that they are too low. They are not 18 feet up, um, as electrical inspectors suggest that they should be. And also, they're prohibited by city code. Yeah, I think that was my point as far as standardization and compliance because as of right now, they are not. So, so maybe to be able to help to, from a global picture, what do you think about them in all aspects? I mean, the, if, if the council is wanting to be able to have these types of lights across streets where there are vehicles, we are going to have to amend city code and bring a code ordinance change to you for consideration. So I think that's kind of the yeah. that's kind of the more bigger global so, picture. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump all over this. I think that um, it's totally inappropriate. Um, this isn't this isn't a fairway. It's not a, a festival grounds where you can string lights across. This is a street right away. Now. I've been in lots of cities where there's lots of lights and festivity all over the place, but the lights are attached to buildings. They're in the windows. They're all around, not across the streets. I see that all those issues that you brought up that make them illegal as we stand in that sort of a situation, um, totally appropriate. I don't see, and on top of that, um, having them there. I, ha I per personally will always look at light pollution as a concern. These are not shielded, they're not downward facing, they just stroll all over the place. And that's why the complaints from up the hill, because these lights, they can see them, they, they light up the night. Um, so I have issues with it from that standpoint. Also, you know, so you have the parklet, you have the coffee house, you have cargo, you have Imogen, they have all that kind of going on that street. Now, if you want a street festival and you want to close off the street so people can walk around freely, but that's sort of what it, it gives an allowance to that. You have this wide area, if you're in a coffee house, we'll just walk, walk out in the street. I mean, it's just a well-lit, nice, festive area. I mean, it, it has that sense to it, and I think that that's uh, problematic as well. So I, I just see, you know, it's a different situation when you have them at the street ends. Or at the end of the street, if you're at Pier 11, you can't go any farther. You're not having traffic go out there. I still have an issue with uh, uh, light pollution. Again, strewing all over the place. And light pollution is a real thing. There's so much light out there. It affects the birds for bird migrations. Um, and we do have migratory birds moving through here. You know, if, you, if you've looked at any satellite uh, uh, imagery of, of the U.S. at night compared to what it used to be, it's extraordinary. So to add to that sense of uh, light pollution, I have concerns about, but more, even if that wasn't a concern, I think the location with uh, everything that's been pointed out, to have to make them go higher, uh, to have them the correct, I don't know, it just seems, it's, I'm not sure if that's a downtown street thing, if that we need to foster here. Um, again, it, to me, it gives me that it's, it's a carnival feel. And as fun as that is, this is not, that's not a carnival street. You know, we close off streets for, for festivities, but we don't just have festive streets. Um, I'm not sitting at opposite ends of the desk, but I think we're pretty close to on the same page on this. Um, 
couple of observations. First of all, uh, lights that are meant to be attractive strung over the street are also strung over the street during the day. And during the day, those wires look like what they don't look good. Um, I'm a fan of the businesses on 11th Street. I think they're great people. I am not a fan of those lights. We happened to turn down that street the other night, and the first thing that hit us was, wow, those are really garish. They're way too bright for the purpose. And immediately it occurred to me, how would, how would Dan get a fire truck through there if he had to? Uh, you know, they're just inappropriate in that spot. Once down the alley are fine. That's not, a, that's not something an automobile uses. But even the ones at the ends of, ends of the streets, and I know this is going to upset some of you in the audience, but those wires are there during the day, too. And they look tacky. People celebrated when, when streetcar wires were, were taken away. Um, you know, because they, they hated the way they looked. And now what we're doing is we're putting wires back over the streets. I would love to see us stick with the ordinance that we have. I would love to see the ADA do a study, but maybe focus somewhat on that study about the kind of ambient lighting and pedestrian lighting that could be done, as Tom pointed out, attached to the buildings that aren't strung overhead. I, I think that's that's an approach that I think would, would service better. You can still do some very attractive things. Uh, I don't think the overhead lights are, are an answer. I can see why businesses want to do them to create focus and, and bring attention, but I, I don't think it's a positive thing for us. I, I had, well, uh, oh, go ahead, Joan, sorry. No, go on. No, you, you go ahead, Joan. I just had a couple points. I mean, personally, I like the lights. Uh, again, it's it's less about my personal aesthetic opinions. I definitely think that those that are not in compliance uh, should be. Um, I, what was I gonna say? Um, I had a couple of questions, not to get off topic, but I was wondering, uh, and this might sound like a ridiculous question, but lights that are plugged into the, the street, like the street lights or the street poles, who pays for that electric, just out of curiosity? So, so right now, the, the lights that are over 11th Street, the electric is paid by the municipality. Okay. Um, the uh, and then my other okay thank you Barbara my my other question was um, and I hate to even bring this up because I, I I like these lights too the lights uh, that are strung across ODOT territory so um, the Christmas Club lights over the holidays is that so they have they have a permanent permit yeah yeah um, ODOT allows a temporary permit. Oh, they do? Yeah, okay, for, great. For Christmas. Okay. Yeah, seasonal. Declarations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, the Simpson Street alley lights are obviously in a subcategory. They provide safety at night and hopefully discourage illicit activity. Um, the lights at the foot of 11th Street. I don't see it as an issue as long as they're meeting the uh, electrical requirements. Um, the one over 11th uh, by the parklet, I am concerned with for the reasons mentioned, but I will say we all have different tastes and I really like the lights. So I personally think if the 
owner can come into compliance, and I realize we don't have a code for them yet, could they be um, eligible under, say, a temporary use type of thing, as long as they met the safety requirements, so that a fire, the ladder truck could get through there, and um, the electrical was, you know, met the requirements? Um, no, that the answer is we have to amend the city code to be able to allow it. So that's the, yeah, that, okay. yeah. So it would to, to be able to, to yeah, and we would need to be able if they were to be permitted. Um, this isn't this isn't a zoning matter; it's a, a city code matter. So okay. so we would need to amend the city code that deals with right of way issues and. We would need, if the council was wanting to permit them, we would need to build in some standards uh, that would be brought forward in an ordinance amendment for consideration by council. And because we're a company. Okay, I personally, I was going to say, I personally support that. Um, I personally feel that it's downtown, um, we're to a great extent of visitor community. Many of us like to be downtown on the summer nights, and I like having the lights. To me, they do provide effective atmosphere, and I find that positive. But they absolutely need to, if we're going to do that, then we need a code, and they need to meet the safety requirements at a minimum. Yeah, we're a complaint-based uh, compliance enforcement organization at the city, so if no one had complained, we could just turn a blind eye to it, but complaints have been made, so we need to make a decision. Um, I think we're basically two like and lights and two that don't. And I, I kind of like the lights, but um, uh, so in the long term, you know, I would be I would be in favor of uh, looking at code amendments uh, that would allow for lights that meet all those things we talked about, high enough for the ladder truck and downward facing, subdued lighting, not something that wouldn't create upward noise pollution or light pollution and obviously safe safe uh, commercial grade exterior lighting that if that's hardwired not plugged into an extension cord uh, and then you know if we had that as a code amendment it would be at a city council meeting with public process and if all the public comes in and says no no we don't want that then I'll change my vote and mayor I know you have some folks here that want to talk about another project that they'd like to go and put in downtown Okay, and I, and I just want to say that I, I agree with the mayor that you know with, with all the proper uh, codifying, you know, to make it safe and um, and less obtrusive and still have that that look. I, and I get that. I, I like that too. And it, and it could even be um, you know limitation of how late they can be on. You know, it can't be on after one o'clock or after midnight or something. You know, whenever. So they're not on all night long and that sort of thing, sort of limited use. You know, those sorts of things put into place would make me a lot more comfortable with that particular situation. Because I agree with the alley. It works beautifully. It's, it's pedestrian-oriented uh, and makes that a really useful space. On 11th Street, you already have lights. And you could add light Again, you could add lights on the facade to really affect um, the ambience out there, too, without stringing across the highway necessarily, but um, I could be persuaded. Yeah, I think what Barbara presented too addresses a lot of, I think, what we're concerned about uh, across the board. Um, I had 
There was something I had a question about. Oh, one thing that I just wanted to mention, and I don't necessarily have thoughts on this either way, but this was uh, something that was expressed to me, um, was that the, the lights, uh, light pollution is a big concern for me as well. Um, I, and I think having them turned off at, at a certain point would be um, attractive. At, at, and I'm only mentioning this again because this was mentioned to me, was just that the lights, having the lights on overnight has addressed, um, and maybe Joan can speak to this, but some of the safety concerns for downtown. That's, yeah, I, okay. Again, I, no thoughts on that either way. It was just yeah, we've got sent to me in a text. Downtown is pretty well lit in general. Yeah. Well, if anyone would like to speak to this issue, I'd invite you up to the podium. Jason, um, they own the, the building across the street from us that has uh, the insurance company um, across 10th Street from us. And we, uh, we started talking about this a while ago, about stringing lights across. Um, and uh, I approached the, the not, I didn't really formally approach the city, I spoke to the clerk downstairs at the desk and she informed me of the code that you guys cited, the 9.220, I think it is. And, um, we kind of threw water on the whole idea for us because, you know, um, but it, I kind of left talking to her feeling like, um, you know, you got to know somebody in this town to get anything done because down on 11th Street, this guy's got the lights and I don't, you know, that kind of thing. Now, my, my first take on it is like I'm not um, trying to diminish what's going on on 11th Street. I kind of just want to like expand on it, you know, so that we can kind of. And I'm coming at it from, a, from a, a couple of different places, and I'm not here to present any of the cons. I think that uh, the person on the two's teleconferencing kind of covered all the, the negative aspects to the lighting, and you guys also addressed the light pollution, which I think is a valid concern. Um, but I think that um, I made a list here of some things that I think would, uh, would benefit from from having these cross street lights. Um, one is unifies the look of the downtown since we're already having it in other places. I think it kind of brings that together. Um, it uh, deters nefarious activity. We've um, had a great deal of um, uh, just folks not acting in a, in a respectful way on our street and not respecting our businesses, um, leaving trash around, um, sleeping wherever is comfortable for them. You know, it's just like, Shedding some light on it, I think, uh, helps helps that, and it makes people feel safer. Also, I think it helps uh, pedestrian tra uh, traffic feel safer uh, at night. Cars can see people um, better if it's well lit. Um, uh, I think that um, on a business side of thing, I will think it will increase uh, foot traffic and bring people down our street uh, more than um, if it wasn't well lit like that. Um, therefore, stimulating economic activity, which um, I do could argue with that. Um, so anyways, I think that it will help our, uh, our businesses you know, succeed more. We, um, 
we, we just recently filled up all of the storefronts on our street finally, which is nice because we've had things kind of come and go. And um, I'd like for it to stay that way, you know. Um, but um, there's the safety issues and then there's also the economic issues. I know that there's a downside. Um, one of the things about our corridor um, on 10th Street is the facades of our buildings, the parapets are 21 feet whereas the existing lights on 11th um, are substantially lower than that. That's why you have guys with RVs kind of like lifting up the lights going across. So stringing the lights across um, on a steel cable, which is how we wanted to do it, with brackets that um, bracket our parapets, and then a steel cable that runs zigzag back and forth, and then um, zip tying these commercial lights. I brought these in for you guys to check out if you want to see them. Um, to those, you won't see any more sag than two feet. I think it'd probably just be a one-foot sag, so we're probably looking at like 20 feet to the street. And that's off, of, I was measuring off of curves, so the street's even lower than that. Um, those lights over there are LED lights. Um, they're plastic globes, shatterproof. Um, and they, because they're LEDs, um, they, they last so much longer than an incandescent, they can endure um, weather changes much easier than an incandescent, therefore less maintenance. Um, and things of that sort. So um, the way I had, I had originally drawn up a, a sketch of how we would string it across the street in a zigzag pattern, um, looking at the concerns regarding light pollution and, and intensity of light, this is on a 10, a 10 foot spacing. This could be done in any way. I, we could put a 20 foot, a 30 foot spacing so it's a real, so there's much, much less fixtures and, and, and thereby dropping the intensity. Of light, and that's something that we're certainly willing to uh, have that conversation about. Um, obviously, we don't want it to be so bright where um, you know it hurts the eyes, and it also will all hurt um, uh, drivers because we don't want them blinded by it either. It has to be a, a fair light. But at any rate, we uh, we wholeheartedly uh, support the changing of the color. We um, the reason we approached the city in the first place is because we believe in code compliance. And we don't like doing things and then uh, asking for forgiveness later. You know, we want permission up front. And that's why we're here today. Thanks, Todd. So I think um, you know, I think we should uh, we should enforce the code where it's currently being violated, but also we should uh, look at developing code. And I, I, I like Barbara's idea of doing it in partnership with ADHDA, kind of put the onus, onus on ADHDA to maybe come up with a, a scheme, because we don't want, you know, over the next five years, each year a, a different property owner, a different street comes in with a completely different scheme. You know, one person wants the lights to go like this, and let's just make it consistent. And I think the onus should be on ADHDA, maybe to, to shepherd a process to come up with a proposal for what that consistent lighting scheme would be, so that we don't have just craziness on every street. It kind of looks consistent throughout the community. Imagine that too. Um, yeah. I really like the idea of you guys having a meeting and then hearing what the citizenry has to say too, because there's legitimate concerns that Roger brought up about um, brightness um, and, and bird, bird migration and also the annoyance to the folks who live up the hill too, because their, their world should not be impacted in a adverse way just because I want to sell somebody a beer. You know, that's, you know, that's the fact of the matter when you live in a community, you need to weigh all those things. Yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's, a, I appreciate you um, 
being here because uh, that's just wasn't something I was necessarily thinking about was like 11th Street. And I, and I know 11th Street has been, it's always been sort of a, what, I'm kind of wondering <laughs> how these streets can, can get a little bit more activity, get a little bit more attention. And 11th Street is, is kind of like an orphan out there. It's, it's right next to 10th, but it doesn't get the activity. 10th is an orphan. 10th is an orphan. 10th is an orphan. And then, and, and, just getting some and it's, it, you know, people tend not to kind of quite get that far or, or turn up that way in the evenings. Uh, even during the day, it, it can be a little bit less uh, attractive. So I get the, that that would help, and, and I can see that. And again, so I, I like the idea of coming up with some standardization and take some of these things into account. Um, you know, we do have we do have an ordinance somewhere, do we not, about uh, light should not be projecting into somebody else's property sort of things. Like I, I, I had a little issue where I lived down top bottom of the hill and two blocks up, an apartment building decided to put a new parking lot light on and it was an LED that spread out and it showed all the way down, I mean, in my bedroom window and I thought, that's impressive. But it wasn't there before, so that's that's part of it. Is being a good neighbor as well, and you you made that point. So um, I'm interested in seeing what, where we can go with this too. And and again, compliance again, safety is really big, and that's haphazard. And there's a there's a lot of um, devices out there to control these things uh, by time, and there are also I believe that there's also like automatic rheostats too, where you can the intensity of them yep. as well. I haven't explored that yet, but um, there's all kinds of like little gadgets that work in compliance with the, within unison with these guys that uh, can, I think we can get the lighting to a level where it's not driving people crazy, but it's also kind of serving the goal of like making the streets a little bit safer and attractive. Uh, and, and, and in the dark months, because you know, let's face it, we live in darkness like a lot of the year. So, so uh, Barbara? Yeah. So um, you kind of heard the conversation. What 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 more specific guidance do you need from us to carry out kind of the gist of what you've heard from the council? Um, I think I've I've got some really good guidance. I think I'd like your permission to approach the ADHDA to see if they'd be interested in doing uh, a study. Well, I, um, and Barbara, I think Barbara, what I what I kind of heard is maybe the the council is saying they they want. The ADHDA, that they're they're looking to the ADHDA to be able to help shepherd this conversation rather than their interests necessarily. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think it, that it's definitely in their best interest as well. That. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. I will um, come to our next meeting. Um, I will talk to Sarah Lou ahead of time and see if um, I can be on the agenda at the next. Really? Well, because they have the Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, see, so as, as, as long as we're here, is there any other updates that we need to get with council or anything? Anything with COVID 19? Nothing today. No, no updates today. You guys all got the update from the meeting yesterday to talk about this. Very good. Is there any uh, discussion groups of stricter I mean, I know some cities in California now are doing basically just lockdown kind of situations. 
I, I mean, I know that that's been discussed in Salem, but I haven't, uh, I haven't been checking my updates for the last about Go four hours, but are you hearing anything? Governor Brown made an announcement that at this point in time, she is not um, putting in a shelter in place order for the state of Oregon. However, um, I just got a blip that says, from the Oregonian, it says Portland mayor, says city has drafted a potential shelter in place policy. Yeah, I saw that this morning that he was considering it. And um, so the, the city of Astoria and neither the city nor the county have talked about, uh, you know, having an imminent any kind of shelter in place or we're just aware that other jurisdictions are doing it and Salem might do it. I, I would be surprised to see either, either the county or the city just by themselves implement a shelter in place and it's not coming from the state. Yeah, as I walk around the streets, uh, it seems to me that people are pretty much respecting the idea of the social distancing. I think so. And there are also other recommendations um, that people do need to get outside, to stay away from one another, but to get outside. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and I hope that if a shelter in place comes out in Oregon, that it does not say you have to remain indoors, but away from other I mean, I would hope you can get out and walk around far away from other people and not be told, no, you have to be back inside your house. But I think some of them are actually more draconian than that, so. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I think the only, the only thing that, that struck me along these lines of point of concern um, is in the parks. Um, so I'm working up by Peter Pan, up by the park up there. And the last couple afternoons, there have been a lot of kids. They are not social distancing. They're out there playing basketball. They're playing on the, the, the sets and all that and jumping around. You know, there's not necessarily any supervision going on out there. So just so you know, that's what's going to happen when, you, when kids are just out playing. They're not going to be thinking about this stuff. Yeah, it's going to be So just be aware of it. And that's probably why some places are doing shelter in place because you can't control the, some people. And I, and I do want to know too that this kind of came up in old Facebook where uh, Representative Mitchell made the point somebody commented to her about that sort of activity at Tapiola Park and you know kids being really close together. And I, I just want to note that I understand that um, you know with parents and having their children at home now, uh, many parents don't have the ability to manage it, um, or necessarily even be home with their kids and to supervise uh, what's happening. So this is going these things are gonna are going to happen. Um, some parents just aren't capable of it. Others are, are more prepared to do so. So you know there has to be a certain amount of charity when we talk about these things, but we also need to point at potential points of concern. I know that as of nine this morning, Clatsop Public Health put out that there were no cases confirmed yet in Clatsop County. The closest case to Astoria geographically was in Longview as of yesterday. That's about all I have to report. All right, and we're adjourned.